Acts 6, and commencing there at verse 1. Hear once again the word of our God. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Porcherus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmanos, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to our hearing this evening. We are obviously taking up the subject of the diaconate, and so really continuing what we began two weeks ago. And you remember we, in one sense, are reversing perhaps the normal course of things. We began by looking, first of all, at the qualifications of those who would hold such an office. And now this evening we take up the office itself, its character, its constitution. And we do so, of course, recognizing that the office itself arises from the book of Acts, from the very text that we read. And so it arises from that moment in the history of God's people where the new covenant church is coming into her maturity. This, of course, this entire book of Acts sets before us those great changes that are made as the church underage fades and the church of maturity, the church of the new covenant blossoms. And what is striking in this text is, once again, we have a mark that as the church is growing, she grows also in the knowledge of the blessing of God. This is a church, a period of our history in which the blessing of God is so evidently set all throughout every account we we come to in this part of of God's word. We find again and again multitudes brought into the church who just weeks prior had rejected Christ. Numbers of these crying out for Christ's crucifixion, crying, His blood be upon us and upon our children. And yet God, through His blessing, brings them into the church. This is the book of Acts, at least up to the point that we've read this this evening. And so, as we look at the office of the diaconate, we can't forget that this is its foundation. A time of maturity. A time of blessing. But as we look at these first seven verses of Acts 6, we also encounter that this was also a time in the history of the church of crisis. Now, of course, we've encountered persecution up to this point. Already those who have named the name of Christ have found that they will be persecuted for his cause, for his sake. But in Acts 6, we have something slightly a bit more unique. In this case, we have the church agitated in crisis, not from pressures without, 
but from within. What's striking in this moment is we have, of course, that murmuring that's described for us in verse 1. When the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. The first time, really, that in the history of the church and the new covenant, we find some kind of internal strife. And then we find not only this crisis, but more to the point, more to our point this evening, we find this resolution. And here's the resolution. It's in the very words of the apostles. It is not reason, they say, that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look out ye among yourselves seven men, whom we may appoint over this business. Verses 2 and 3. What I want you to notice as we just begin, as we look really primarily at the resolution that's given to us in this text, we need to be very clear that the resolution here is not dismissive. There's a way of reading Act 6 that would be entirely wrong, but a way that I think perhaps is common, that the apostles are simply dismissing the crisis itself, pushing it on to somebody else, because the apostles, if you will, had more important things to deal with. But if that's the way we read the text, I'd submit to you that we're reading the text very wrongly. First of all, friend, I want you to notice that the apostles see this as a very serious matter, and we see that from the text for, very, for two very simple reasons. First of all, the work that's in view here was not small in the apostles' minds. The very work that the apostles had in view with regard to the diaconate is the very work that they themselves were doing. Just for an example of that, if you look at Acts 4.35, you'll find this. As many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them. And know what they did. They brought the prices of the things that they were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. In chapter 5, you find the same exact example. You have the apostles standing as those who would receive the funds of the church, and really what is emphasized in the text in that case, and highlighted even in our text this evening, is the fact that up to this moment, up to this crisis, the apostles were the ones who were caring daily for the ministration of the church. They were the ones receiving, and they were also the ones, up to this point, distributing these funds. And the reason why I highlight that for you this evening is because the apostles who are called to do all things for the sake of the gospel, think it is so necessary for the well-being of the church that initially they first gave themselves to this work. This is not small work in their eyes. This is not tedium to them. This is something that they saw as necessary, so necessary that as apostles, they themselves oversaw it up to this point. And then secondly, to illustrate how solemn a thing it was in the Apostle's mind. Note how solemnly these deacons are set apart. This is not simply a case that they are shirking, as it were, these obligations to another simply because they wanted to be rid of them. Note how solemnly they go about the work. The men must be highly qualified men, and on top of that, when they are chosen, note what is said here, they prayed and they laid their hands on them. For the apostles, this is no small thing. This is not a dismissive kind of approach to whatever crisis is going on in the church. And what do we learn from that? Well, friend, we need to recognize, first of all, that this is a real crisis. 
At first, when we read these seven verses, it may not seem like that to us, but very evidently to the Spirit of God and to the apostles, this was a real crisis that needed to be dealt with immediately and decisively. We need to recognize that from the onset. And we need to recognize, too, that as we look at this crisis, we have two pressures that are coming upon the church. First of all, you have the murmuring. And that murmuring tells us that the very testimony of the church is at stake. Publicly, in a sense, people are voicing things about the people of God that are contrary to the church's profession. Contrary to the testimony and cause of Christ. That's what's being voiced here. But also, of course, not only do you have a kind of marring of the church's testimony, you have division. The Greek-speaking Jews now pitted against those who were Hebrews within the church of God. The testimony and the unity of the church are really what are under, under siege in this text. And so know what the apostles do. They urge the church to move toward electing these deacons. And these deacons, we're told, first of all, must be men of good report. We'll come back to what that phrase means in just a moment, but but holding all that I've said together, it's quite clear why these men must be of good reputation. These must be men who can faithfully bear the testimony of the church, faithfully silence the murmuring that has been going on, and also tend to the unity of the body. What do we learn from this with regard to the diaconate? Well, very simply, what this text holds forth is that the diaconate sets forward the church's public testimony. Well, that may be perhaps a surprising statement. I want us to see what we mean by that through three headings. I want us to consider, first of all, the remit of the office, then the requirements that are to be met by those who would hold it, and then the reputation that it has with regard to the church and her testimony. And so first of all, the remit. What is the mandate of those who are called? Now as we look at the text in verse 1, the crisis erupts over what we call here the daily ministration. It's the very same idea that you have in verse 2 when the apostles talk about serving tables. The word serve there is the word, perhaps predictably, diaconal. Of course, as you hear it, It's the word from which we get the word deacon. And the idea behind that word is very simple. Diacono is really the word that is used broadly to describe any kind of service, any kind of ministry. Now, when you come then to ask the question, well, what specifically is meant in the text? We need to move toward what you have in the end of the second verse. The discussion there about serving tables. The word tables there is trapeza. And throughout the scriptures, this word is used in various ways. In one case, it's used as a money table. And so, if you, have, if you look throughout the scriptures, you'll find that trapezites is actually, of course, founded in this word trapeza. But that word actually often, meant, often means money changer. To be one who is of the table is to be a money changer. In fact, even in Luke 19, the word trapeza here is actually translated by our translators as bank, someplace where money is deposited. That's one way that the word table is used. Of course, the other way is that it's far more common. It's used, of course, to describe one's table at one's home, where a meal would be had. 
In fact, it's even used as a metonym to describe the meal itself in one case. And it's even used to describe the Lord's Supper. Terpaz is the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 10.21 to talk about the Lord's table. And so if we put all of these ideas together, that what the deacon is called to do, the business that they are appointed to oversee, it really may have certain emphases at various places based on how we translate table. But the general thrust of the meaning is simple. All of the church's practical matters can be subsumed under the diaconate. Whether it is even so simple as a meal, or it is even overseeing the church's funds. All of those ideas can be in view. But the primary idea that we get at this evening is just this. That they are those who are to minister to the practical needs from the church's supply. And what you have in this text then is that those who are giving this oversight, who are seeing over the business of Acts 6, are those who are really overseeing the kind of mercy that is being extended by the church. If we look at this text to illustrate this point even further, I want you to notice how this ministration is described. This is described here as the daily ministration. What the deacons are doing in this case is something that is daily. And of course in Acts 6 the context is caring for widows. To understand what it means here, this idea of a daily ministration, we really need to go to 1 Timothy 5. The church in Ephesus in that text is dealing with a crisis over something quite similar. You have widows who are, according to the apostle, unjustly being added to the church's account. Unjustly, their livelihood is being drawn from the church's funds. I would just want to illustrate this to you from 1 Timothy 5.16. It reads, If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. Now, of course, negatively, the Apostle is telling us very pointedly, there are those of your number who should not be charged for the church. Their livelihood should not be drawn from the church's supply. But we can't miss what the Apostle is saying in a positive sentence. That there are widows, there are livelihoods, in the case in the church of Ephesus, that are to be drawn from the church's accounts. In other words, their livelihood would come through the kind of daily administration that you have in Acts 6. Now, putting all of these things together, the diaconate emerges very clearly as that office called instituted by Christ to be an office that looks to those needs that are intensely practical. Those needs that are intensely, even you could say, physical those needs that pertain to mercy. To illustrate that further, you see how the apostles distinguish the work of the deacon and themselves. They are going to be the ones who, con- who give themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word, while these deacons look to the daily administration of the church. They are giving themselves, of course, to the spiritual needs of the body. They are giving themselves to the real and spiritual edification of the church, while these deacons are tending to the practical needs of the church. But I want to read to you just for a moment, as we look at the scripture witness to this office, how our forebears thought about the diaconate. And to do that, I want to read to you simply from the form of church government, ratified by the Church of Scotland in 1645. This document 
gives us several things that the deacons are not to be doing. Preaching the word, administering the sacraments, exercising church discipline. But this document gives us only one positive remit for this office. One positive mandate. Here's what it is. Deacons are to take special care in distributing to the necessities of the poor. According to our forebears, that was the diaconate. And for what's striking is, as you look at the scriptures, and you look at New Testament history, and as you look at church history as a whole, you find that while all practical matters in one sense can be subsumed under the diaconate, there is one prevailing emphasis, and that of mercy. Our forebears and the scriptures themselves urge this upon us. As we think about the diaconate, we can't separate it, of course, at all from this idea of tending to those physical cares of the people of God. Now, friend, as we look at this text, then an analogy could be helpful. When we think about the apostles in Acts 6, they really are describing themselves, if you will, as the mouth of the body, whereas the deacons will now become their hands. That's the sentence. They will be the ones, the apostles, praying and preaching. The deacons will be the ones who very practically, if you will, with their very hands, tend to those necessary things that pertain to the well-being of the church. And at this point, friend, almost leaving the diaconate aside, what does this teach us? I think we can get very much involved in our thinking about ecclesiology to forget that this is an office that Christ himself has instituted through his apostles. So what does this say? Even of Christ's concern for the church. He has solemnly established an office to care for the very temporal needs of his people. From whence did that come? But only, of course, from a Christ who is so sympathetic. A Christ who is even concerned about the temporal well-being of his own. We shouldn't forget that when we think of the diaconate. Now as we come to the next point, we find here that in verse 3 we're given the requirements that must be met for men to hold this office. The apostles say, first of all, that these men must be men of honest report. That word, really those two words in the English, honest report, are one in the original. It can be translated faithful witnesses, or testimony bearers. The word in the original is actually marteo. And again, you can understand where that word comes to us, or how that word comes to us in the English. It's the word from which we get martyr. The apostles are saying, the men whom we are looking for are testimony bearers. It's a very solemn thing. He's not simply saying, generally, civically, good men. These are testimony bearers, faithful witnesses that are in view. Then he says that these must be men full of the Holy Ghost, And that's actually a phrase that only comes to us in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And in this case, they're described as men full of faith and the Holy Ghost. Verse 5 of our text. Which tells us here that the men that are in view here are men that are genuinely spiritual. Men that really have some experiential acquaintance with the truths of the faith. They are full of faith and they are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And so they are men also of wisdom. The truth that they hold, they apply it practically, intimately in their lives. And as you look at this list, there's obviously a comparison between what you have in this text and what we consider from 1 Timothy 3. In fact, the parallels are actually quite striking when you see them. 
The apostles say here, these must be men of honest report, which seems very much to correspond to what 1 Timothy 3 requires of them, that is to be grave and blameless. In our text, the apostle says they must be full of the Holy Ghost, which very much, describing here spiritual men, certainly corresponds to what the apostle says in 1 Timothy 3, that they must be men who have the mystery of faith and a pure conscience. Likewise, these men must be full of wisdom. Which, as you look at 1 Timothy 3, certainly that's in view when the Apostle says that they must rule their houses well. And the word well there is the idea of properly. They are ruling with propriety. And so, at the risk of perhaps preaching that sermon twice, let me just say to you, in this short compendium, in this very brief summary of the qualifications of men who are to undertake this work, I want you to notice that there is no other qualification given but holiness. None. Not in Acts 6. Not in 1 Timothy 3. And what does that teach us? Well, friend, again, setting even aside the diaconate for a moment, this teaches us what all of the scriptures with one voice speak. There are none called to serve who have not first heeded the call to holiness. There is no service that God asks of man without first calling him to be godly. And again, that's not only for office bearers. That's not only for those who be deacons or elders. This pertains to any service in any case in any part of the cause of Christ. If we would serve Christ in any way, my dear friend, we need to remember his first call to us is to be godly. He would have this of course, set before us with regard to the diaconate and the eldership. But even these things are only set before us as examples for the whole body to follow. Holiness is requisite. But thirdly, as we come to a close, we're not just told that these men have a certain mandate or a remit, nor are we told that these men must meet certain requirements. We're also told something about the reputation of the church in conjunction with the diaconate. And this is perhaps a bit more subtle, something we might not read or see when we read it at first these verses. But I want you to notice, as we go back to verse 1 just for a moment, note how the inspired historian presents to us the crisis. He says, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. Now, if I stopped at this moment and asked you, what is the real crisis? I would say perhaps that most of us would immediately say, well, it was the neglect, or rather the favoring, of one body of the church over another. But what's striking is that's not what the inspired historian tells us. He tells us the cause, the instigating cause that leads to this established office is the murmuring. What's striking is even the word that he uses there. That word is not just suppressed speech. It almost always, in fact, arguably in every case, describes something that is sinful. A kind of illegitimate speaking. And so the apostle says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. That's, our, that's the very word in our text. Putting all of those things together, what do we see? Well, friend, what's striking is, as you look at Acts 6, you don't find the apostles, who were overseeing this ministration, by the way, ever confessing publicly 
that they were derelict. Nor do you find them asking publicly for forgiveness for being derelict. The idea from the historian himself, as he's writing under inspiration of God's spirit, is that the murmuring really was the inciting cause to everything we have in this text. And that really does explain for us why the apostles are so keen to get a testimony bearer, doesn't it? Why the apostles are concerned not merely to get a man who is generally trustworthy, but a man who in a very solemn way could set before the world the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, the men that are called here are men who could put away aspersions cast on the church's testimony by such murmuring. And that leads us, as we close, to this idea that deacons in the exercise of their office really do reinforce the church's testimony. And let me illustrate that for you very briefly. Think of the private Christian for a moment. When Christ speaks of them, he says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. A very straightforward, familiar text. But see what underlies it. The, the Christ is requiring of Christians there is just this. That the good that they would do must not only be found in their closets in private. The good that they would do must be manifest in some way to the onlooking world. And why is that? So that men would see it. And is that all? No. As men see those good works, says Christ, that they may be led therefrom to glorify your Father which is in heaven. In other words, if a Christian is going to be faithful, if the individual believer is to be faithful, here is Christ's statement, you must be of manifest piety, even that an unbelieving, onlooking world may see it. And in seeing it, that may be a very instrument by which they are led to God. That they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. Or allow me to take you to another familiar text to the same sense. A man may say, says James, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? The Apostle's point is very clear. If you are really possessed of genuine faith, if your religion is genuine, you will be of necessity producing fruit. Otherwise, that faith is counterfeit. You remain a hypocrite. Even describes here the man who might think otherwise as a vain man. But remember James' congregation as he even writes this. James writes just a few verses later. But ye have despised the poor. If a brother or a sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? And the question there at the end pertains not to the same, but the thrust of the text pertains to the whole man's profession of faith. All of those texts indicate the private believer, but apply that for a moment to the church broadly. If a church is not manifestly giving themselves to mercy, well, friend, how do we fare in light of these texts? If a private Christian must, must manifest the genuineness of his faith, 
by works that may be even seen by men, and the church fails to do so, what do we say of that corporate moral person? You see, when we come to Acts 6, that kind of thinking helps us, doesn't it? It helps us understand why this was a real crisis for the apostles. If the world is watching and there's murmuring that these are neglecting second table duties, what does that say of the genuineness of their faith? The genuineness of their religion? The diaconate comes in in this moment to silence those murmurings and to demonstrate the vitality, the reality of the gospel. And what you see here is God's blessing upon these kinds of things. The word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied. As they concern themselves with second table duties, what does the Lord do? He causes first table duties to be blessed. As they seek him in the worship of God, the word of God says the word of God is 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 increased. Others are added to the number. As these deacons set forward in a very practical way the vitality of Christianity, even by simply working working through mercy, you find the Lord blessing. I read to you from Jeremiah 7. And as you remember in that text, the comparison that the prophet draws is between Shiloh and, of course, the temple in Jerusalem. The prophet comes to a congregation in that text and he says very pointedly, he says, this is what the Lord requires of you. And he really, in a very basic way, summarizes the entire Decalogue, both tables of the law of God. And he says, if you would do these things, both tables... Then I'll cause you to dwell. You'll remain. And you'll know my blessing there. But then, almost as an object lesson, he points them to Shiloh, where you remember at one stage the tabernacle stood, and the people of God resorted to it. He says, you remember that place, and you see it desolate now. And why? Yes, because you've neglected first table duties, but also because you have neglected the widow, and the orphan. You have not manifested even mercy to your fellow man. And what's striking in that text is, the prophet says, because you have failed in both tables of the law, I have left Shiloh desolate, and I will leave Jerusalem desolate as well. The idea, friends, is just this. That if we are a first table church only, we will wither. We will and we must. If we are truly a people conformed to the image of Christ, we are concerned for the whole law of God. Which means then that this kind of mercy ministry will be and must be manifest among us. And the diaconate, my dear friend, the diaconate by Christ's own institution is for that very end. Yes, for all the practical matters of the church, but really to set before the world the liveliness and the vitality of the faith. I'll close with just this. In verse 7, we're told it's almost a detail that we could overlook. It says here, a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, that's striking for a number of reasons. It's striking because, of course, these were priests 
who had just previously rejected Christ, even as he came into his temple. So it's quite striking, isn't it, that these ones who were once hardened to Christ are brought in. But there's another reason why this reference is striking. You remember in the Old Testament, the Levites were to be cared for as acts of mercy by the other tribes. In fact, the godly man in Deuteronomy 26 says this. He says, I have brought away the hallowed things out of my house, and also have given them unto the Levite and unto the stranger, to the fatherless and to the widow, according to all thy commandments which thou hast commanded me. And the idea is that Israel was commanded to care for the widow, the orphan, and the Levite as well. The priest was even to be cared for as an act of mercy. And so what do we have in Acts 6 and the 7th verse? We have priests who are leaving the desolate house of Israel. Leaving a house that was destitute now of the grace of God. Coming to a church that now demonstrated the very thing that was always encapsulated in the Old Covenant. This wholesale commitment to the cause of God. Both with regard to first and second table duties. They choose rather to be among those who manifest genuine piety. My friend, I have been insisting on the diaconate and for natural reasons, but as I said to you already, the deacon, like the elder, is really supposed to be a mold for the believer. And if the deacon is supposed to be a man who is given to those acts of mercy, the question is, do we want to be given individually? To such things. Are we a first table Christian only? Joseph Elaine, a man of course mightily used of God and minister, one of the great things that even the enemies of the church in that time had to say was that he was not a first table Christian only. He saw the whole cause of Christ and really moved to see its advancement in every way which even included temporal mercy, tangible expressions of love. My friend, as we close, this reminds us that we are to be a people who are so very thankful that the Lord has given us deacons. We we should be very thankful to God that such is our case. And as we come to a deacon election, we should be praying that the Lord would guide us as a congregation to such men. Men who be genuine testimony bearers among us to the vitality of our faith. Who would set before the onlooking world real expressions of love. That would silence murmuring in an age of declension. This should be our prayer as we come to this Wednesday. It's not merely, though it includes, of course, buildings and grounds. The primary emphasis is that they would set before the onlooking world even now. The love of Christ manifest among his people. So my dear friend, if you desire God's blessing in these things, seek it in earnest by prayer as we come to Wednesday. And on a more private note, this text is a wonderful reminder that if we would desire the Lord's blessing in our worship, if we would desire the Lord's blessing upon all of our labors, as we seek him in private through prayer, through the reading of his word, We have to recognize here that God's blessing comes 
as his people hold to the whole cause of Christ, as they seek to be obedient both with regard to the first and second tables of the law. It was as the widows are kept, as provision is made to vindicate the testimony of Christ, that the word of God is increased. Oh, and may that be our experience even after this Wednesday, that we would know such blessing even among us. Amen.